Good morning. Not We're starting a little late here. here. We are. Three Women, Three Ways, and we're the show that uh, covers issues regarding women and violence, interpersonal violence, family violence, and uh, general news, and we do it by uh, talking to certain es- experts. And this morning we have with us Caroline Davis. Caroline, are you there? Yes. Good. We have little technical problems getting started here, so we're running about seven minutes late, so I apologize for that. Caroline Davis is our guest today. She's been in family law for about 30 years here in Seattle, and she worked as a guardian ad litem in private practice. She also worked with uh, our county's CASA, which is a court-appointed special advocate who are, I I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, Caroline, they are volunteers who are trained to act as uh, guardian ad litems to certain extent is that correct that's correct and they they operate under the supervision of the CASA program okay and uh, she's past president of the King County Bar Association she's a graduate of Boston University School of Law and she has as I've mentioned been a uh, guardian ad litem and has uh, continues to be a guardian ad litem and mediator in family law court Caroline, thanks for joining us today, and uh, sorry for the difficulties getting uh, rolling here this morning, but I think guardians ad litem, is is it guardians ad litem or guardian ad litems? Uh, Plural would be guardians with that and S, ad litem. Okay, that's what I was thinking, but I see it so much the other way. Um, (laughs) Guardians ad litem are really, really important to women who are in domestic violence situations. Um, in previous shows, we've talked about how you know the large percentage of of divorce cases and child custody cases go along just fine, or at least or workably, on their own. And there's about 15% of cases that actually require uh, court intervention to determine custody and custody arrangements. And of that 15%, the vast majority involve domestic violence issues. And those are the cases that require a guardian ad litem, and those are the people who uh, stand in the the whole process and and the whole mix of the divorce and custody battle, and they're the ones who are supposed to be looking out solely for the children. Am I right there, Caroline? Yes. The model that I'm familiar with is at Washington State, and particularly King County, and when a person is appointed as a guardian ad litem, you're appointed for what's called the best interests of the child. So you're advocating for what you think is best for the child, and depending on the child's age, there may be some input from the child on what he or she wants, but it's also uh, your judgment call on, on what you think is best for that child and why. And I'd be willing to say a, a large percentage of the time, most of the time, the judge will follow the guardian ad litem's recommendations. Am I correct? Well, the judge is not obligated in any way to do so. It's one more piece of the puzzle, and uh, it just you know it just depends on the judge. It depends on the guardian ad litem, and um, sometimes they follow it. Sometimes they follow follow parts of it. Sometimes they don't follow any of it. it, it you know, yeah. it's, it's not a hundred percent given that that's what's going to happen. So, but usually it does, right? It's pretty typical, but I, I think yeah. people need to understand that final call if the parties don't agree is the judge. So sure, that's, sure. That's how it works. Um, yeah, I used to do pre-sentence reports for misdemeanors in King County Court, and more often than not, the judge would follow exactly what the recommendations were because that's the person who has time to really examine the details and the surrounding circumstances and all that kind of stuff. And that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Caroline, What do you see a lot of um, conflict or have you seen a lot of conflict in these kinds of cases? And if so, could you explain some of that for us? Well, sure, because a guardian ad litem isn't appointed in case where the parents are getting along well and can work through uh, a schedule for their child. A guardian ad litem gets appointed in what's usually a fairly messy case. That could be what's called a high-conflict case, or it can be a case where the court is concerned about either or both parents, and that concern may stem from 
domestic violence. It may stem from substance abuse. Uh, mental health issues, sometimes all of those things are going on in a case. Um, and so the court would ask the guardian of the item to, as you say, get in and investigate more and get to know the family and see the children and, and report back. Okay. And how do the how do the guardians do that? Well, um, I, I can say in a general sense, when you get a case, first you read the papers that have been filed with the court, the pleadings, to see what each side has said. And then uh, guardian ad litem is going to meet individually with each of the parents. Um, often that's done at their home to see what the circumstances are where they're living. They would often also observe each parent with the child to see the interaction. And if there's more than one child, you know, couple kids together, uh, depending on the age of the child or children, talk to the children individually, then you're going to also get outside information. So if you have a parent who's in any sort of uh, treatment or therapy, you may want to get a, a release to be able to speak to the treatment provider, the therapist. If there are police reports, you're going to want to look at those. We're often asking each parent for uh, names of people we we refer to as collaterals, meaning people who can uh, talk about them as parents, and that may be neighbors, it may be family members, maybe friends, um, and just gather all that information together, and then ultimately I have to write a report summarizing that and make recommendations, which include both a schedule for the child with each parent. And if there are services that are recommended for the child or the parents, um, if you have a school-age child, you're often talking to uh, and getting school records to see how that child's functioning in the school setting. Okay. Um, and, of course, this costs money, right? Um, the, the parents, the judge will determine what part or who will, what, which of the parents will pay for the guardian ad litem. And, right. A, um, a private guardian ad litem costs money. The the uh, there's in King County there's a family law CASA program and it is um, free. There is a sliding scale for people in the. It, it has an income cutoff and it has a sliding scale for people in the upper income range that they accept. But it's a pretty modest fee. No. But for, for other families, yes, you you pay guardians ad litem typically charge an hourly fee, they may want a retainer, uh, an upfront fee before they'd start a case. Yeah. And by an hourly fee, that can range $100 up, right? Yes, because, for instance, in King County, there are people who are social workers who are guardians ad litem. There are people like me who are attorneys. Um, so they, And depending on level of experience and training and so forth, they're hourly can vary widely, yes. Okay. Um, so what happens when a guardian ad litem contacts, the, say, the mother? What kinds of, what you said that they usually have it in the home. I've, I've encountered a number of situations where they go to, like, a McDonald's and meet. Um, and um, what, well, and what that, kind of... Well, that can be true because, for instance, if, if the mother's living in a secure shelter setting... Um, mm -hmm. the guardian ad litem won't be allowed to go to the shelter if it's a confidential address. So there may be an initial meeting in a more public location, um, McDonald's, Starbucks, things like that. And sometimes there's an initial meeting to get some paperwork signed and, and sort of a meet and greet and kind of explain the process. And then there may also be a visit to the house as well. Yeah. I think a lot of people who go through this process, it's just a complete mystery who this other person is, this guardian ad litem. And right. uh, if if you've had experience with that, we'd love for you to call in, share your experience, ask some questions. The call-in number is 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. And share with us your experiences. Before we go on, Caroline, I'd just like to explain that every state has its own rules and guidelines for guardians ad litem. Every county has its own rules and guidelines. 
and um, most of the time I have heard of um, the guardians ad litem have to have some sort of um, additional training. In King County, you uh, are only allowed to be a private guardian ad litem if you are a licensed psychologist or social worker or an attorney. In other counties, uh, they evaluate the person based on their experience and training in other areas. So if you want to know more about your particular area, usually the Bar Association can direct you to a resource for learning more about guardians ad litem. Do you have any suggestions for people who want to learn more, Caroline? Uh, Washington, for example, has court rules that are statewide, and they have some rules that are uh, guardian ad litem rules, which are abbreviated as G-A-L-R, and you can look those up online. And then I know in King County there's some variation of those rules because they're King County local guardian ad litem rules and and other counties. So that can be a good source of information as well. King County maintains a registry, so to get on the registry you have to have gone through training, but also fill out an application, um, background check, and so forth, and be approved by the court um, to get on the registry. And yeah. the, the registry qualifications in King County are fairly stiff. Other counties vary, and again, it, it I think depends on population and uh, you know who's available and so forth. Yeah, yeah. So there are different rules. There are different uh, responsibilities uh, depending on the uh, court district, the county, the state, um, and uh, probably um, one of the best ways to at least start to get information is to contact the Bar Association. At least here in King County, the Bar Association is responsible for the training program for guardians ad litem. Um, Caroline, what kinds of situations have you encountered in your career as a guardian ad litem? Well, just a real variety of of um, things. You have people who have quite severe problems, other people who really are fine as parents but are angry about the issues that brought their relationship to an ending and, and are essentially taking that out on the in the parenting realm when they really need to get some personal help around the fact that their relationship is over and, and not carry that over onto their kids or whether the other parent has access to the kids and so forth. Um, but it it's just the varieties of parents and situations and children is is I sort of myriad. It's you know everything you can imagine. So. Yeah. Um, again, we're since we're talking, usually that contentious 15% are the ones that are utilizing guardians ad litem. You can probably expect things to be pretty um, tense for the children. How you know how do how do children react to a guardian ad litem situation? It's interesting, um, particularly slightly older kids, and I'd say you know middle school on up. I think they tend to be more appreciative that someone is interested in hearing their views on it. Uh, they may very well feel caught in the middle of their parents' argument and struggle and not not like that and not know how to get it to stop or you know what it's about or why. And a lot of kids tend to assume that they're the cause of that problem, even though that may not be the case in any way, shape, or form. Um, mm-hmm. But that's just kind of how... The kid's mind works, and so they're often pleased that someone will talk to them. As a guardian ad litem, you have to be careful and explain to children that if you know whatever they say to you may end up in your report, and that it's not something you can keep confidential from their parents. Um, and some kids don't want to express a preference about who to live with or or where to live, which is I think more mature than we <laughs> would expect of them. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, well, yeah, no matter I, what situation, it's got to be really tough on children. Um, you know, not only going through this divorce process with their parents, but also having strangers come into their lives and strangers who are able to make life-changing decisions about their lives. 
I think I think the whole process of having their their parents separate and there's a new household or maybe two new households and sometimes there's some other new people involved and all of that is very disrupting and unsettling for kids and there are ways to make it better um when you're separating but oftentimes the parents haven't haven't done that and in, and in fact have sort of made it worse because again the the parents get very caught up in their own emotional drama about the relationship ending and don't think well about how to deal with the children around that. Sometimes talk to the children in ways that would be appropriate to talk to your best friend or or colleague, but not not to a child, and particularly not to a child of the parent that you're so angry with. Um, So it's hard, and and those things, you, you can't take them back once they've come out of your mouth so it's difficult uh for kids and it doesn't take much know. sometimes a, a parent will think that they're just making a small comment and not nearly um with vitriol or or not nearly um as strong as they're perhaps thinking about the comment and yet a child can perceive that as extremely um um emotional and and as an extremely strong statement um, I've heard of cases where a parent thought they were being very, you know, um, appropriate and thought they were being very um, generous and, and not judgmental about the other parent, and yet years later the child is going, oh, yeah, you said this, and, and it was just, you know, yeah. rocked my world about mom or dad. And uh, So it, it's uh, interesting. Of course, kids can do that about anything, but I think it's interesting how sometimes comments that we don't even think are particularly significant can be really significant for a child. I I agree, and I think the other thing that that parents forget is they may be talking to another adult, but if they're doing it where a child can hear, um, then the child's picking up on all of this. So they they really need to be careful about um, not bad mouthing the other parent, not talking endlessly about the case, and. Um, yeah. And and not letting their extended family and friends have those discussions around or in front of or in the hearing of of the kids. And you know, believe me, if things are being disrupted and a lot's going on, kids are listening. They're trying to figure out you know what's happening and what's the discussion about. I think mm-hmm. another mistake parents make is they'll talk to kids about the financial aspects of the case that. You know, maybe your father's not paying child support, or he's not paying enough, or she wants all of the property, or and these are not things they understand, or they can control, they can deal with, and again can get them very upset and unsettled because they, they don't really understand the ramifications of it, or what are they supposed to do about that, or does that mean somebody's good or bad? So yeah, really, you know, I mean, it's a tough thing for a parent because. Gosh, you know these things are are huge in your world as well, and right. especially like the finances or whatever, and gotta be tough to explain to a child without placing some sort of blame or some sort of responsibility on the other parent. Um, what if there's a situation where there is a protective parent, and by that I mean. Um, the other one parent, and well, I'm just I'm just going to say the father because statistically that's usually the way it is. Um, say the father has been uh, abusive. Say there's been a mm-hmm. domestic violence situation, and the court still wants that domestic violence uh, to, that uh, perpetrator to have custody uh, or have visitation with the child. That puts the protective mother in a really tough situation because how can she protect the children when she's not there? Um, how and you know we read constantly about um, fathers. I mean, here in Washington, we of course had that very famous situation where um, the um, children were dropped off by a court representative for visitation, and the father then slammed the door in her face and killed himself and the children. Uh, those things do happen, and how can a protective mother deal? with the likelihood that she wants to protect her children, she wants them to be cautious, but do that without 
bad-mouthing the other parent. I mean, that's like an impossible thing, isn't it? Well, I think, uh, first of all, they those things happen. They're not the norm, and, and I don't think every woman getting divorced should get into a panic that her kids are going to be killed by their father. Um, there are, you can request supervised visitation, and there are certainly, the court has the ability to have a supervisor present at visitation for either parent if there's a concern that the children are at risk or could be harmed. Um, and there are people who, you know, do supervision. That costs money, and it, it's not a perfect system in a perfect world, but it's one way to ensure that kids are safe. And there there are ways to talk about that with children. I think one of the best things for a parent to do if they're in that situation is to get some help from a therapist, a counselor, and say, how do I best explain this? Um, and you need to do it in a way that is developmentally appropriate for the age of your child. Um, and maybe explaining, you know, somebody else is going to be there on the visit and they're just going to help you enjoy your time with dad or mom or, or whatever. Um, it, it's also if you wanted supervision and the court didn't order supervision and you still have concerns, um, you may want to make sure that the children have the ability to see a counselor so that they have someone they can talk to about any behavior or concerns that are coming up or happening during the visit so that you as a parent aren't grilling them about everything that goes on or conveying all of your fears to them um, that that may be genuine and may not be. Um, so I, I think it's good to try to put some other person in there as a safety net for the kids. Yeah. And, of course, we always come back to the issue of money. All of these things cost money. And quite often um, the um, parent does not have the money to provide all these things and all this support uh, for the children. So it's kind of between a rock and a hard place for the protective parent, isn't it? It can be. And it's not It's not a great system uh, when you don't have the finances to pay for those services on lower income cases, oftentimes instead of professional supervision, you may want to try to find an extended family member or friend, uh, someone who can be the supervisor. And and that's difficult because it you know takes up time. It's often on the weekends and it's during that person's free time. Um, I, I think you want to look carefully to get somebody who's not embroiled in the case and and really is neutral and can just report about exactly what's going on, who has the ability or willingness if the visit is something's happening that shouldn't be happening, can stop the visit and and remove the children. Um, there are sometimes there's some services available for low income families for visitation that you know in King County there've been some that have come and gone and over the years and you just have to keep an eye out for what's happening um occasionally I've known some people who've been able to find someone through their church who may not really know the family at all um but would be willing to to supervise and um oversee a visit and help out in that way you want to be cautious of course about who you pick um but think about other resources that could be used. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I've noticed, in you know, I, I, I work with uh, people and talk with people who have been into these kinds of situations with their um, ex, and um, I've heard, heard a lot of things about, well, the guardian ad litem met with, with me once and met with the kids at a McDonald's and then uh, decided that the dad should have full custody. And they're kind of outraged because how can you make that kind of a life-altering decision based on a 30-minute a, a visit at a McDonald's? Um, it, this must be a, a very difficult thing for the guardian ad litem. But, um, you know, I, I, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, are there standards for guardians ad litem that, no, you can't make that kind of a decision 
based on one, you know, 20-minute visit? Well, one 20-minute visit seems pretty unlikely to make a whole decision. But I will say, again, different counties have different uh, ways of handling it. Some counties limit uh, the cost and time a guardian ad litem could put into an entire case. And and that may be because the court is helping pay the costs of the guardian ad litem. Um, I think one of the things to do for the person who has a lot of information is get it organized. And if you don't feel you can talk about all of it during the interview, Put it on paper and um, you know get it together and get a copy of it to the guardian ad litem and maybe get a copy in advance of the interview. Um, now that said, you want to be thoughtful about what you're providing. There, there are people who will send you a lengthy email every single day for a 12-month period over their case. That's way too much information, um, and and in, the information needs to be relevant to the issue at hand. So if you're concerned about domestic violence, that's what you need to be providing information about. You know, talk about what the incidents were when they occurred. Was there anyone else around? Are there any records? Um, you know, you can do some of the research and gather some of the information if you have some medical records that relate to that. Get them, get them ready. Have them, you know, turn them over, hand them over, and and do those things. Um, so be proactive on on those issues. Um, if you're deeply hurt because your spouse has been dating your friend, yes, that's a legitimate reason to be emotionally and and terribly upset. It may not relate specifically to parenting per se, um, and you need to kind of Think about what it is you're wanting to spend all your time talking to the guardian ad litem about, and and what's important. So, do guardians ad litem, I suppose, being human beings, that there are some that are more uh, geared one way or than another way as far as um, listening to parents or or believing stories that the parents tell or something like that. Um, how do guardians ad litem, or do they? consider that their own personalities and prejudices might influence their decisions? Oh, it's, that's a very good question. I, we are all human, uh, regardless of what we say or try to do. We all have our biases. Some of them we're more attuned to. Some of them we're not very attuned to. Um, I I know attorneys pay a lot of attention when they're reading guardian ad litem reports to whether there's the appearance of fairness and balance. In other words, were both parents talked to the same amount of time? Were the observations with the children the same length of time? Did you talk to as many collaterals for mom as you did for dad? Now, occasionally there's a reason that that balance doesn't exist. Um, I've had appointments where the court specifically said, I want an investigation of the father around these issues. I would expect that report and the time spent is going to be much more on the father than and, than on the mother. Um, and, and that may be because the court sees some obvious behavioral whatever concerns about the father. Um, I think you you want to see what you can find out about the background and training of the guardian ad litem ahead of time. Oftentimes you may have some choice in selection of, of people. Um, on the other hand, I've, I've had attorneys say, well, how many times have you recommended for mom versus dad? And I find that kind of a, I, I, silly may not be the right word, but a question of virtually no value because these cases are so fact specific. Yeah. You know, if I have a mom who's actively and openly abusing drugs and not able or really parenting her kids, I may not recommend for her that. And that doesn't mean I'm biased against women. Um, it, it may mean that this particular mom's not in shape at this time to be parenting her kids. So, 
Yeah. I think you can also ask around in the community. Uh, uh, you, you can ask the prospective guardians ad litem, can you tell me the name of some attorneys you've worked with in the recent past, call up, see what, you know, see what you're hearing about these folks and if they have any concerns or problems or whatever. I actually went through the King County Guardian Ad Litem training, and one of the things that struck me is that they did um, talk a lot about domestic violence, and as I mentioned, the studies show that these contentious divorces often, uh, more often than not, have some sort of domestic violence history uh, behind them. Uh-huh. So they did, they did spend uh, uh, some time talking about domestic violence, but then there was that emphasis of, you know, knowing the facts that, you know, most often, not that it's impossible to have um, uh, abused men, but most often, overwhelmingly, it's men abusing women. So how can you, knowing that fact, expect a guardian ad litem to do a 50-50 in um, uh, awarding custody and visitation? I mean, that just makes no sense to me. And yet, even with the training on the domestic violence situations in these cases, they still emphasized 50-50. In other words, if the guardian ad litem um, gave custody to mom over dad too often, then that's an indication of prejudice. And that made no sense to me because I thought, but statistically, it's more likely that dad will be the abusive parent. So how can you expect 50-50? I... I guess I'm confused. Well, I've, I've taught part of the guardian ad litem training, so I don't. The the law in Washington doesn't say there has to be a fifty fifty schedule, and in fact, uh, the preamble of the Parenting Act says, you know, we we aren't looking for a lot of ping ponging back and forth for a child. We want a stable home, so there's not a presumption that it's it's going to be a 50-50 schedule. Um, years and years ago, there was a presumption that women should always have custody, and particularly little children. You know, that just was an absolute given. That, which they called the tender years presumption, that that is gone. So we no longer presume that only women are capable caretakers of children. Um, just in the same way, if you're a gay parent, there's no presumption against you or in favor of a parent who's um, heterosexual. But I, the law also has some built-in protections. If the court finds domestic violence um, under Washington law, they cannot require joint decision-making, um, they would restrict the other parent. Typically, they would require that parent to go through domestic violence treatment um, and have a more limited and restrictive schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess uh, one of the things that I was making my comment based upon is that a number of the people um, outside of the training, you know, just lunchtime conversation. Several of the attorneys, I think most of them were from Snohomish County, now that I think about it, which is another county near King County, adjoining King County. Um, there, That's where I was getting that, that uh, comment from, because um, there was definitely talk about, you know, they wanted to um, uh, be careful that a guardian ad litem didn't give custody too often to one parent over the other. Um, you know, that that was... The, what made my my um, eyebrows raise is because I thought, well, but statistically that's more likely to happen if you have an abusive situation, and statistically you are likely to have an abusive situation. So the I, notion that if uh, custody is granted to mom too often, then the the assumption is is that the guardian ad litem has some prejudice there, and I just I couldn't understand that um, because as I said the the uh, likelihood of uh, domestic violence being man on woman, husband on wife, is is there. Um, so how could you expect half of your cases to be... Am I making any sense here? <laughs> well, I, 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 I think your concern is about what you heard 
people talking about. I don't know that that's the practice or that's what's going on. I don't practice in Snohomish County, so I, I can't say. But again, I think if all you're doing with guardian ad litem is trying to tally up how many times you've recommended for the mom versus the dad, without knowing the facts behind each and every one of those cases, you haven't really learned much unless you have, yeah. you know... The ridiculousness would be if you had a guardian ad litem who had never recommended for one particular sex parent. Uh, then clearly you've got something else going on. Mm-hmm. But I just, I'm not aware of that. And uh, I have a feeling that was more discussion than actuality. So. Okay. Well, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. I hope, I hope so. Let me toss out our phone number one more time 646. 646- Three seven eight zero four three zero six four six three seven eight zero four three zero. You can join our conversation, share with us your experiences, and uh, if you've had a guardian ad litem. And uh, there are horror stories, aren't there, Caroline, about what a guardian ad litem can do um, with child custody? I, I hope it's just the rare rare occasion. I'm, I hope so, but there are cases where you know you hear some real horror stories about a, a GAL experience. Um, do you think that is just uh, the the bitter a bitter parent who perhaps didn't have things go his or her way that are, are perpetrating some of these this this stuff about how difficult it is to work with guardian ad litem, or do you think that there are guardians ad litem who probably should have better training or who may have an agenda? Oh, I I think there may be both. There are certainly parents who have very significant problems and virtually no ability to recognize or address their problems, and so they are going to want to point the finger at somebody else and say that's that's where the case went wrong. That's why I don't have primary custody. That's why I have to do this treatment, or that's why I have supervised visits. And yes, of course, you're going to have some guardian ad litem who maybe aren't making good decisions, didn't put enough time into it. Um, I don't know if they have their own agenda or, or if they just you know, missed some important facts or you have somebody who's really good at putting on a a good front and uh and they get fooled. So Yeah. Is there any recourse uh for a parent, say uh custody has been um denied or visitation has been severely limited and the parent really feels that that, that was a wrong decision. Do they have do they have recourse? Can they appeal that guardian ad litem uh report or uh you know, I mean I know once the guardian ad litem writes the report then it's up to the judge. The judge makes a decision. So it's foolish to say, well, you know, let's go get that guardian ad litem because she's not making the decision or he's not making the decision. Nevertheless, can is there some way to refute the guardian, litem, guardian ad litem's uh, opinion? Oh, sure. And you can always do that. Again, the judge doesn't have to accept the recommendations at all. Um, and some judges pay more attention and some judges less. If There are lots of ways you have to figure out what it is about the report that you think is a problem. So if, for instance, you think interviews were not accurately uh, portrayed, then you'd call the people that were interviewed as witnesses in the trial and have them say, well, this is what I really said or this is what I meant or this is what I've seen. Um, and if there's a lot of that, then clearly the court's going to give less and less weight to the, um, we often say GAL is a shorthand, to the GAL's yeah, report. Sure. Um, for some people, it's what the information portrayed may be accurate, but they don't like the conclusions that the GAL reached based on that information. Again, that's that's argument. What's another way to you know look at what's what's happened or what's not? Um, in King County, you have a right to uh, prior to the trial look at the guardian ad litem notes. Not every single word of every interview gets into a report, or they you know be book size. <laughs> so you yeah. may want to see what what got left out or um, what's 
and part of it is too is how skillful are you at questioning and cross examining the guardian ad litem. So if the person recommended uh, in favor of mom and your dad, you may want to say, well, what are what are the good points about dad? What what has he done well? What what are his strong you know strengths as a parent? What hasn't he done well? What does he need work on? Um, and the other is to be mindful of if the guardian ad litem is recommending some services, have you done them? And then come in and say, hey, I I admit there were some drawbacks here. I've worked on those. I've improved. I'm better uh, in whatever category you want to say, and therefore those limitations shouldn't apply. Um if the judge makes a ruling and you don't like the outcome of the trial, you yeah, you do have a certain period of time when you can file an appeal. Yeah, important to have a good attorney working with you. I it, would yeah, think. it's really hard to navigate through that system on your own. Oh yeah, and again, you know, we come up to the to the money issue. So many people do not have the financial resources um, to be represented well, and yeah. um, that's just. It's just a shame, you know. I mean, it just is a shame. But it is the system that we operate under, isn't it? Um, yeah, it is. There are, you know, you and look around because there are uh, what they call pro bono, which is free or some low cost services available to folks. So really search around in the community, ask around, check with the bar associations, um, and and see what's available out there. Is there any difference between the CASA or the the, the uh, volunteer program, uh, lower cost program, and a private guardian ad litem? Oh, sure. The, well, the CASA takes members of the community, and they go through pretty much the same training as the private guardians ad litem do. But then the CASA advocate works under the supervision of the CASA program staff. So for the Family Law CASA program in King County, there's a social worker that oversees, that supervises each case. And so the advocate is checking in with the supervisor and getting feedback and bouncing ideas off and and reviewing the report and getting some assistance. Um, In King County, once you've been approved by the court to go onto the registry list, um, you're you're not there's no one overseeing your work other than the people that are you're directly dealing with on the case so um that's one of the the differences some people get very nervous about oh it's just a community volunteer they don't know anything um and again the variety of volunteers is is amazing and it's fascinating to me having been with casa for 10 years what a community volunteer can can do, and some of them will put in an enormous amount of time, much, much more than a guardian ad litem could Which is usually a good thing. If you, which is a you good know. thing often, yeah. yeah. And it, and again, even for a family that can pay, there's a limit to, you know, the guardian ad litem is not spending the rest of their life with you on your case. <laughs> there are some times yeah. and limits and... Uh, and uh, frankly, a lot of it is observation, common sense, digging around, um, you know, cross-checking, fact-checking, and uh, so it it can be very useful as well. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. With <clears throat> oh, excuse me, I've got a frog in my throat here. With a, a guardian ad litem in the picture. Um, it does add some stress, I would think, to the uh, an already stressful situation, but at least it provides some hope, um, especially if there's a protective parent. Um, not necessarily going to go your way, but at least it's a, an avenue that might help you in your situation. Um, with a guardian ad litem, do let's see how can I phrase this? Does their experience, their personal experience? Does that play any part in their decision-making, or does that go back to our question of just the personal um, prejudices and and observations that we have as individuals, as human beings? I think all of our personal experience plays a part in in what we're doing. I think the the 
parents' personal experience plays a part in what they're asking for and doing. Their, what happened to them growing up may make a big difference in what they're asking or wanting to have happen. And So it's part of that. Um, whether that's good or bad, it you know, it just depends on what that personal experience is and whether you're aware of it and is it directing you that, you know, all cases must be done like X, Y, Z, or is it helpful because you've had more background in this, you've seen more things, you're more attuned to, to different kinds of issues. So. If you are a parent and the court is requiring a guardian ad litem, how do you do your homework? How do you how do you select a guardian ad litem? Well, I think you talk to your attorney first and say, you know, they may say, well, I'm suggesting Sandy Smith, and say, okay, why? Who's Sandy Smith, and why do you like her, and what do you know about her, and what can you tell me about her? What's her background? Um, does she have a website, or if I Google the name, you know, what's going to come up? What can I find out about her? Um, may want to talk to some other folks who've, who've worked with her. And then, again, I think be proactive. Put your material together. Organize it. Be helpful. You're probably going to get asked the name of some people who've seen you around your kids, have those names, have those numbers, have that put together. Um, don't drown the guardian ad litem in needless, endless. <laughs> it seems nowadays it's all email. You know, you, in the old days you get these letters, but what? And, <laughs> you can and help, yeah. yeah, talk to your attorney. What are the issues that are relevant to parenting? And those can be different than what makes a good spouse um, and yep. and be able to separate those out and be able to focus on um, parenting issues. And I think it doesn't all have to be negative, you know. You should be able to say something positive about this other parent unless you've really been mixed up with, like, the guy who had the women locked up in Cleveland or something, you know. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I imagine you've been married would have had a hard time. <laughs> right. There's probably some pluses and some minuses. And also, I think the more you can be honest about yourself and there may be areas you need some help or work on or you may need to admit that you are very hurt about the end of the relationship or it wasn't your idea or um, things you've contributed to, I think... The more you try to gloss over or cover up those things, it it makes it worse. It's sort of like what happens when politicians go off. It's not so much the behavior as the cover-up that is the bigger problem. Um, I think the more you can be upfront about a problem and then talk about what you're going to do to address it, the better that's going to be received than pretending there's no problem at all. Um, What happens? Yeah, go ahead. ahead. I was going to say, ask. Ask the guardian and let him. Are there things you need you don't have that I can help get? Mm-hmm. You know, there was a, a case I've tried for several years to find out how it was, uh, how it came out, and I haven't been able to. But there was a case right here in Eastern Washington where a girl was uh, court ordered to be in the custody of her grandfather, her paternal grandfather, who was an abuser. And there were allegations that he was an abuser during the custody uh, decision-making. And when she turned 18, she sued the court and her guardian ad litem. Hmm. Now, I have the the document indicating that she sued, but I have never been able to, this was like four or five years ago, and I've never been able to find out the dispensation of that. Um, Are guardian ad litems exempt? (laughs) Pardon me? Uh, Has it settled? Are you familiar with that? I I don't know the case, but I was suggesting to you it may have settled and that may be why you're not finding a uh, court yeah, could be off. could be but i thought you know that that girl made a very good point you know this guardian ad litem made a recommendation the court followed that recommendation and it was life altering for her and it was not a good decision it was a, a a harmful decision are there is there recourse for a person who um has you know been a child who has been placed with an abusive parent, for example, is there recourse for that child? 
Um, this is not my area of the law. It it okay. There are <laughs> well, if you don't know, there that's okay. are um, protections for the guardian ad litem through the court appointment again because the court is not set up to rubber stamp guardian ad litem reports. So mm-hmm. the risk for the guardian ad litem is much more a failure to investigate as opposed to investigating and coming to the wrong conclusion. The ultimate result of the case is either the party's agreement or a judge's ruling. Um, And if there's a trial, the guardian ad litem is not the only witness. So the parents Mm -hmm. testify, the parents can call witnesses, other people testify. Yep. Exactly. And, you know, lots of information so, comes out. So. Yeah, there. It's amazing to me um, how many permutations and how much personality depends, you know, is, is dependent on, or how many decisions are dependent upon things like personality and assumptions drawn by people who basically have been complete strangers in your life. So that can be kind of daunting for a, a person who's going through this whole process. It, it it can, and it's it's a good reason to try to settle a case if you can, as long as you can work out a settlement that's that's fair, that's safe, that's appropriate. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a, a, I always thought that they should have uh, divorce doulas. You know how they have doulas for child people going through childbirth mm-hmm. and uh <laughs> it seems like they ought to have divorce doulas for people who <laughs> who is uh going through this situation because it is really a difficult situation and a difficult thing to navigate through um it is hard i i think one of the best things is if you've got a good friend or family member who can who can be essentially your doula but who also could say to you you need to let go on this or you or the reverse you know you're not protecting yourself or you're not protecting your children who can be honest with you and whose opinion you would respect i think that's that's helpful but that should be between you two as adults and again not discussions in front of the children yeah it's a tough way to go and uh, you just need to get support wherever you can and i thank you so much caroline for joining us today and uh do you have a website i do for my mediation it's uh c d davis so two d's in a row mediation.com okay thank you for joining us today interesting discussion and uh i appreciate it join us next week we're going to be talking about the connection between animal abuse and domestic violence thank you for joining us Thank you.